Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. I'm Joseph, and today I spoke with Dr. Chaz Firestone. Chaz is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. He directs the Perception and Mind Lab, which studies how we see and think and how seeing and thinking interact to produce sophisticated behavior. Chaz was awarded the 2022 Stanton Prize by the Society for Philosophy and Psychology. In this episode, Chaz and I talk about his recent publication in Psychological Science titled Melting Ice with Your Mind, Representational Momentum for Physical States. The study found that participants who viewed objects undergoing state changes remember them as more changed. Chaz discusses the implications of these findings for our theories of event perception and memory. Let's get to it. Thank you very much, Chaz Firestone, for joining me for this conversation today. It's a great pleasure to have you. It's really great to be here with you, Joseph. Yeah. So, Chaz, you've done a lot of awesome work on perception, mental representation, and more in cognitive science. So I'm really excited about this recent paper that you are releasing on how our minds represent changes in states of matter. And I guess I'd just like to start by asking, why is it interesting for you to study how we represent changes in states? For example, like what kind of functions do you think these kinds of mental representations would serve? One fairly intuitive reason to study representations of change is just that the world is a dynamic changing place and change makes up a huge part of our everyday experience. So rocks roll down hills and they change their locations and a log might catch fire and change its color or texture. Maybe your friend's mood changes and they go from being happy and smiling to being sad and frowning. And, you know, these aren't special cases or unusual scenarios or like the kinds of things that only exist in weird societies. These are just fairly universal experiences that every person and even many non-human animals experience and encounter every day. So studying representations of change is studying that and even more. But I think a second and maybe less immediately intuitive reason to study representations of change is that the capacity to represent something as changing is intimately bound up with the capacity to represent something as being stable and maintaining its identity over time. So you have the ability to understand not only that a rock rolled down a hill, but also that it's the same rock at the bottom of the hill that was once at the top of the hill before it rolled down. The same rock just changed its location. And that's the same for your friend who was smiling before, but now is frowning. Even though they look different across the two encounters, you understand it's the same person. They were just happy before, and now they're sad. And it's hard to see how you could do that without being able to represent change. So in fact, like imagine that you were the same as you are now, in every way, except you just lost the ability to understand that things can change. What would those experiences I just described above be like now? You would see your friend smile, and then you would see your friend frown. And if you had no ability to connect those two instances as the same thing that had changed, what would you make of it? You might be forced to conclude that there's two people, 
right? Like a smiling person and a frowning person or two rocks, one at the top of the hill and one at the bottom of the hill. So your whole experience of a stable world with persisting individuals would just crumble. And so you really need to be able to represent change in order to have any hope of understanding the world in a coherent and stable way. It looks to me like representations could either be thought of as online representations or offline representations, which is the, I guess, the opposite. And my understanding from the literature is that an online representation is just the mental image you have as you experience the stimulus at the same time. And then offline could be sort of like maybe the memory trace of the the mental model you had or maybe your prediction about future states. Uh, So when you talk about how we represent change, are you making a distinction here or are you thinking maybe just more broadly, how does our mind uh, think about change? You know, in our lab, we're interested in both those kinds of representations. For us, maybe we might think of the online representations that you mentioned as being our perception of the world in the moment. But then there are a lot of other processes. We could call them online processes or offline processes, but they're certainly downstream of seeing the world around us. And those are things like how we remember the world, how we talk about the world, how we think about the world. Uh, Usually these are all, you know, after seeing it. And I think it's possible to study representations of state change across all of those kinds of processes. And in fact, in the work that we're discussing today, we really use a certain kind of memory representation to probe the phenomena that we're interested in. Now, even there, there's some distinctions to make. So I guess maybe shortly we'll talk about exactly what we did in our in our studies. But, you know, there's memory in the sense of like, you can remember some thing that happened to you many years ago, right? I could show you some changing object on Monday and ask you about it on Tuesday. Um, so, those, you know, there's memory that's like sort of very long term, longish term. But then there's memory for like what you saw one second ago. And that's the kind of memory that we explore in our work, at least in this paper. And so um, even though this is a, in some sense, an offline process, it's still, you know, a near neighbor of the online process, right? You're, you're encoding something that you had just seen um, in ways that may become clear as we, as we get into the details of what we've done in this work. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is because it does feel pretty understandable for representations in memory to be distorted in some way because, because they're in the past. And so there's, there's all these cognitive demands for having to remember all the specific details about what happened. Um, but I guess this is a good segue into the theoretical or this sort of hypothesis that in, seems to be inspiring this work that you did. Uh, there's this hypothesis, I don't know whether it's a theory, called representational momentum that's been cited to explain something about how we represent change in physical space. So do you want to start by talking about like what representational momentum is before you go into your study? Or you could also go into like specifically your study. I think representational momentum is a great starting point. How about we call it a phenomenon? It's like a thing that happens regardless of the explanation that we might have for it, which which is also something we could talk about. So, you know, one of the ways to study representations of change is to study not directly those representations themselves, but instead the consequences that they have for other processes in your mind. And memory is the one that we're discussing now together. And the really nice example of this that you just brought up is representational momentum, which is really quite a simple 
but also a very powerful phenomenon that we become interested in in our lab. And it owes initially to a study in the 1980s by Jennifer Freyd. And uh, the way that the study worked initially, you know, I think almost the best way to convey what this phenomenon is, is just to tell you about this very simple and very interesting paradigm. The paradigm goes like this. You are shown an object, say on a computer screen. The object is going to be a rectangle, pretty, pretty ordinary stimulus. And then you're going to see this rectangle change. And in particular, it's going to rotate in front of you. So you're going to see it at like 90 degree orientation and then 80 degrees orientation and then 70 degrees orientation. And then depending on the exact version of the paradigm, what you have to do next is tell the experimenter in some way, what was the last orientation of the rectangle that you saw? So sometimes the way that works is the experimenter will show you an instance of the rectangle and say, hey, is this the last thing you saw? Sometimes they'll show you two options and they'll say, which one of these is the last one that you saw? Sometimes you'll get control over a little mini rectangle, let's say, and you might have to place it in the orientation that you last saw. But across all of these ways of studying the phenomenon, what happens is people misremember the rotating rectangle as being more rotated than it really was. So if you saw the thing at 90 and then 80 and then 70, you might misremember it as being at a 65 degree orientation. And the idea here is that what we're capturing in this phenomenon is your representation of the rectangle changing. And this, this representation, as it were, is powerful enough to cause a kind of memory distortion. And again, this is not test you on, on, um, on Tuesday after showing you something on Monday. This is just like a moment ago, milliseconds prior. And so that's the finding, that you misremember things as being sort of like forward in time or more changed than they really were. And, and importantly, you make this, this error in the direction of the change. And so that's like a really nice example of how representations of change leave traces in other processes. And we can kind of explore the ways in which your mind is representing the changing rectangle without ever asking you a question like, hey, can you tell that this thing is changing? How much is it changing? You know, a scale of one to seven, you know, anything like that. We don't actually have to ask you any questions about change. Instead, we just say, hey, what was the last thing you saw? And we can find in the data that you produce that you were kind of running forward those changes. So it's actually useful usually for me to understand something by thinking about alternative explanations or alternative predictions. To me, the sort of forward distortion of representations is kind of counterintuitive. I feel like I would probably, it probably makes sense to think that representations are kind of noisy, um, but I would expect them to sort of be like maybe normally distributed around some ground truth so that some people maybe think about it as backward distorted, others forward distorted, and then like on average, it's kind of having a mean of zero or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty interesting to have this finding that its representations are actually forward distorted. Um, but yeah, so you you actually did a study to probe people's uh, representation of changes in states of matter. And I'm curious about why you specifically chose to focus on that. And then after that, you can maybe go into like how exactly you probed people's representations. Absolutely. So state changes are really interesting because they are among the most fundamental ways that an object can change. So things like a rock rolling down a hill or a rectangle rotating, these are important changes to track for sure. But there's a sense in which they're kind of 
superficial. And I mean that word almost literally. They're like changes that are sort of surface level, right? Changes in the relation between something and its environment, you know, things like that. State changes, though, and let's use that term kind of broadly. So let's let's use it to include transitions between states of matter, like melting. But maybe we could also include things like combustion. So, you know, when a log burns or osmosis, when something loses water and shrivels up. These are quite deep and profound changes, right? So ice and water are both H2O, but they're quite unlike each other in many other ways. And so in a way, you could think of this as a kind of stress test of the phenomenon, right? How far can a phenomenon like this go? And does it extend to these kind of very special changes? And there actually are some reasons to think that there are some specialness associated with at least certain kinds of state changes. So other domains of cognitive science have recognized them as being kind of special, including domains quite distant from perception and visual working memory. So one actual example is um, from psycholinguistics. Uh, there's this very interesting phenomenon over there called causative alternation, which is when a verb can be used both transitively and intransitively. Um, and state changes are the kinds of verbs that are sort of the best at doing this. So for example, consider a state change verb like melt, you can say things like the ice melted, and you can also say, I melted the ice, and those both sound okay. But for verbs that don't capture state changes, uh, or some other changes like changes in degree, you can't really do this. So you can say, the baby cried, but you can't say, I cried the baby. Now, there are some exceptions to this, but the point is that other areas of our field more generally recognize how interesting state changes can be. And so it's worth asking how they're treated by even more basic mechanisms like perception and memory. Yeah. So why don't we transition into the actual experiments that you ran? I'm guessing you did present participants with some stimuli on different sort of objects changing state and then somehow probed how they represented this. Um, could you talk a bit about the design that you had for the study? Yes. And um, before I get going on the design, I should say that. Um, I'm going to use you know the pronoun we to say what we did, but the we includes not just me, but two really wonderful co-authors whose names I just want to make sure I highlight. Um, one of them is someone who uh, just left our lab, was a postdoc in our lab named Alon Hafri, and he has training in vision science and psycholinguistics. And uh, some of those ideas kind of came together in this project and in some other work that he does. He's actually starting his own lab. I think he started it a couple of days ago at the University of Delaware. And it's called the Perception and Language Lab. And he's interested in issues at the intersection of what we see and how we talk about what we see and understand other people talking about it. And um, his lab is definitely one to keep an eye on if any of this is the kind of stuff that interests you. And my other co-author um, is another special person. This is an undergraduate named Tal Boguer. And he's another name to, to remember because he's just really making a lot of things happen before he's even started graduate school. And I do think it is his intention to start graduate school at some point. And so he's an author on this paper as well and is responsible for tons of what I'm about to say. And so I want to make sure that, you know, I'm just sort of the guy who gets to like hang along and um, and steal all the credit and talk to you about it on, on a podcast. But they did a, most of the hard stuff. So here's what they did. So um, Tall and Alone took advantage of this piece of software that is just really cool to use. And maybe some listeners have used it for some of their work called Blender. And it's kind of a computer graphics program that you can use to render these very nice looking 
physical scenarios or, you know, there's actually some like really wonderful, there's sort of like this corner of YouTube that's devoted to just like really interesting like blender creations. And they used it to create um, animations of objects undergoing state changes. So things like an ice cube melting on a plate, a stick of butter deforming, a log burning and, and sort of turning ashen, a grape shriveling, and a few other things like that. And they made these little, yeah, I called them animations. You could think of them as like videos where you could see an ice cube transition from being a nice sturdy block of ice to a sad puddle on a plate. And what they did was they showed subjects segments of these animations. So they might watch a short segment of the ice cube melting. And then the video was interrupted partway through the melt. And then the subjects actually got control of this uh, melting ice cube using like a little slider. So they got to melt or unmelt the ice cube as they wished. And their job was just to make the thing look like the last frame of the animation that they saw. So maybe they saw an ice cube go from fully um, constituted to halfway melted. And then they got control over a copy of the ice cube and had to just recall how melted did that thing get? But actually, we don't even use that language. We just say, what was the last frame you saw? And what we found is that people will adjust this slider to be to make the ice cube more melted than it really was. So it's as if they're misremembering the ice cube as being farther along its state change than they actually saw. They're kind of running it forward in their minds. And again, these are not state changes that we're mentioning or trying to highlight with the instructions or anything like that. They're just supposed to do their best to remember what they saw. But they can't help, it seems, but run the thing forward a bit. I should also add that uh, anyone who's listening and who is by a computer can actually see what this experiment feels like for themselves. So we have this like demo page. It's available on our lab webpage, which is perception.jhu.edu. But an even faster way to get to it is the following link, perceptionresearch.org slash dynamic states. And if you go there, you'll see uh, an archive of our data and some code and some demos for how to sort of like be in these experiments yourself. They won't actually collect your data, but you can just see what they're like. And uh, in case any, anyone wants to sort of make real what I'm saying. But that's what we did. That was sort of at least the first past experiment. I actually did try out this study on the website. It's quite fun. One of the things I noticed is that once people watch the animation, once it plays for a while, there is like a an image of like white noise or like a masked image that shows up before you're presented with the actual task, which is to find the last frame was that you saw. Yeah. Why is it specifically that you showed this scrambled up image? Was there a thinking behind that? Yes. So you use the word mask to describe it. And that's exactly how we would call it as well. The purpose of the mask is sort of to interrupt any processing that happens between you seeing the last frame of the image and you making a response. So just to give like one little example of the kind of thing that might happen if you didn't use a mask, we are susceptible to after images. So when something is in front of you and then it goes away or you look away, you get a little ghostly copy of the last thing you saw that kind of lingers. And not that this is a huge concern in this study, but what could happen is you could get a little after image of the last frame and maybe answer on the basis of that thing. But the mask 
tends to disrupt that kind of thing. Um, and it also disrupts just some other sort of lingering processes that um, that are just nice to kind of like, hopefully not worry about quite as much. And so they're typically used in studies like this for that reason. Yeah. So that was the first study that you did. And it, it looks like you did some subsequent studies to probe some potential alternative explanations for what might be going on. And I think one of them might just be that, you know, people have seen ice melt in the past and they've seen these sorts of state changes. And so, I mean, they're probably just like trying to think back to what it looks like when ice melts and then making a prediction and then just going, this is what it would look like if it was a bit melted. Did you consider these kinds of uh, potential explanations and like, did you try to counter them in some way? Absolutely. So, you know, maybe there's two readings of the of the question you know, could this be explained by past experiences with these state changes? One reading would be like a little less exciting for us. One of them, I think, could still be like quite exciting. And maybe I'll even drop a sort of free experiment idea for anyone who wants to explore this further. So one reading would be sort of the way that you clarified it at the end. Like, I've seen ice melt a lot of times. I know what that looks like. And so maybe I'm interpreting my job implicitly or not as, um, you know, just make this look like the thing I see all the time. And if that happened, that would be that would be kind of interesting, but I think a little bit less interesting than you sort of running uh, the melting behavior forward in your mind, as it were. This is an alternative that we do think we can rule out and ran an experiment in our study in, that was intended to rule this out. And what we did was we just played backwards videos. So we had a second experiment where instead of seeing ice melt into a puddle, what people saw was a puddle unmelt into an ice cube, okay? So not a puddle freeze and become, you know, like a patch of ice that you would slip on, but like reconstitute itself into a complete ice cube. And now you have to recall the last frame that you saw. So you see a puddle go into an ice cube and you have to use your slider again to adjust it. And this is a quite an experiment that really could go either way, right? Maybe even though you show someone an unmelting ice cube, they still misremember it as more melted. But maybe what happens is they misremember it as more unmelted. And the latter is actually what we found. So people misremember an unmelting ice cube as more unmelted than it really was. Now, this raises some new questions, which we've tested in some subsequent experiments, which I'll mention in a bit. But at least I think this helps to rule out the idea that all I was doing was sort of just revisiting a time I saw some ice melt and just trying to make this thing look like that thing. Now, there's a different reading of the question, could this be explained by past experience, that I think isn't really a confound as much as just like an exciting new research direction. So, you know, what you could be asking is, do I have to have seen melting and like get what that is in order to perform this way on the task? And in particular, do I have to know that like ice is the kind of thing that melts? So to make that question sort of more concrete with an example, Suppose you rendered an ice cube made of marble, which typically doesn't melt, at least at the temperatures we're exposed to. This is the kind of thing you can easily do in Blender. You can make an ice cube made of marble, and then you can make that marble melt into a puddle. A question that we have not investigated is, would you get the same results with a melting ice cube made of marble? I honestly have no idea what the answer to that question is. And I think any answer would be interesting. It would be interesting if it stops working with marble. It would also be interesting if you get representational momentum for melting marble. So I hereby 
toss that idea out into the universe for anyone to follow up on. <laughs> yeah. So there are also like many other, I guess, potential objections. I think the fact that it's a the video playing in a certain direction has this uh, feeling to it of if you're watching a video, there's certain expectations about what things are changing. And it could just be that that's just priming people to be like, well, what's the next logical step in this motion? So it looks like you sort of tried to address this by presenting people with like static images. Was that the thinking behind that experiment? That's right. So you know, I just got excited in front of you about this backwards video experiment because, hey, I think we ruled out that this is just about familiarity seeing melting ice. But, oh, no, maybe that experiment revealed some other problem, which is, wait a second, like, we wanted this to be about your mind sort of embodying some physical principles and um, having some understanding that ice melts. And, in fact, the title of our paper is Melting Ice with Your Mind, but apparently... We also could have called it unmelting ice with your mind. Um, so maybe what's just going on is that anytime I see anything change in any way, I just play that thing forward. That still might be interesting. But sometimes, you know, when you're studying something and it's it's seems really flexible and almost like anything goes, you want to find some constraint on it so that you know that there is some real sort of rules that govern it in some way. Another potential issue that maybe I've raised by mentioning these two experiments so far, is that maybe the whole thing is not about state changes or ice or melting or logs or burning or anything like that. Maybe actually what I'm doing is just running forward the motion that I'm seeing. So earlier in our conversation, I mentioned that the sort of first finding of representational momentum is that a rotating rectangle is remembered as being more rotated than it really was. Well, when an ice melt, ice cube melts, it sends off some motion signals, right? The puddle is expanding. Maybe all I'm doing is making a puddle expand. So maybe we've just rediscovered here in 2022, just the very same thing. And there's really nothing new about what we've shown. So one way that we've tried to get around both of those potential worries, which worried us as well, is by, as you suggested, using a static image. So in this study, you're shown just a single frame of the ice melting video, an ice cube, you know, mid-melt. And the thought there is that if you're looking at one of these images, you're not only representing the static properties that are present in the image. You're also able to understand that even though this is a static picture, it kind of looks like a photograph of an ice cube. It's a photograph of something that's doing something, something that's on its way to puddlehood, right? It's melting. And so what's going to happen in the case where we don't show you any direction of motion, a video melting or unmelting, we just show you a picture of an ice cube halfway melted. And in fact, we show it later in some later experiments at all sorts of time points. And what we found is that overall, the effect is still forward. So, um, People who see a static image of an ice cube mid-melt and then have control over the slider to cycle through all the frames of the video tend to pick a frame farther forward in time. Now, the effect is a little bit weaker than the dynamic animations, but we run a lot of subjects, and so we're able to be pretty confident about what we're seeing. There's also a possibility that the effect sort of differs a bit by the particular frame. 
So there's some reason to think that if you show someone a barely melted ice cube, they might sort of like remember it as canonically ice cube-like and not so melted. But overall, the trend is in the direction of melting, which is pretty surprising because we might have just found nothing in this case, right? We might have just found that like when you show someone uh, just a picture of an ice cube, there's just no privileged direction one way or the other. But in fact, what we found is that there does seem to be a privileged direction overall, which is the melting direction. And I guess the same explanation applies to the response modality of having a slider where someone might say, because you're sort of sliding a slider as you see the frames change, then you might also just be, you know, making an inference about this motion happening. And even though you saw an image, you're still thinking in terms of changing motion. Exactly. So, so yeah. So another worry is, okay, I showed you a static image and that thing is not moving. So that can't just be explained by motion signals in the image. But you get control over the slider. And, you know, you, you mentioned, Joseph, that you, you tried this experiment on yourself and you even like very kindly called it fun. And I think some of the subjects said something similar in the comments. It's pretty fun to like move the slider and make the ice cube go, you know, boop, 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 and like just make it become QB and then become puddly and then become QB. And so what if what, the following is what happened? What if people saw a static image of an ice cube? It wasn't so remarkable. But then they had all this fun with the slider. And they like played the melting animation to themselves, whether like intending to do so or not. And they thought, oh, wow, look, I can make the thing melt. That's so fun. And then they sort of ran forward the animation that they played themselves using the slider. That's, a, you know, maybe a little fantastical, but maybe not if you find it fun to play with this thing. So we've also run a version of the experiment, which is in the paper as well where there's no sliders. So now you're shown a static image of the ice cube. And then you're shown two images of sort of candidate options for the last, for what that static image was. And this is a two alternative force choice task. So you're supposed to pick one of the two images. And here we found roughly the same thing that we found in the previous studies. Again, overall, the bias is forward in time. There is some trickiness associated with designing an experiment like this because you have to do things like pick how far forward or backward in time you're going to show these examples. And also the videos, these animations, like they look pretty real, but like it's not clear that like frame space is the same space as like state change space. So even if I show you, say, one image that is a several frames forward in time and one that's several frames backward in time. It's not uh, a guarantee that the magnitude of the change is the same in these both of these options. So I actually think that both of our response modalities have some strengths and have some weaknesses, but hopefully their strengths and weaknesses sort of control for each other. So the nice thing about the slider is it's just completely up to you. You're not constrained by the options I give you. You just say what you think you saw. The downside is it has this worry we just mentioned. The two alternative force choice case has the upside that it's quite constrained. You don't really have much choice. You just get to pick one of two images. The weakness is that there's some sort of experimental choices you have to make about how best to do this. And um, it's not always clear what the best one is. In this case, we pre-register our choices. So there's no like flexibility after the fact. And in fact, every experiment in this paper is pre-registered and the data are available online. But um, but I think together, the two response modalities 
give some nice coverage over some uh, some potential confounding factors. Yeah. Thank you for going over all that. I think I'd, I'd like to switch gears a bit to just try to understand why we think this is the case. Why is it that people's representations are distorted forward in time? And yeah, like I said earlier, I, I did expect them to sort of be, maybe half of participants would say it would be distorted backwards in time, but the other half think it's distorted forward in time. And so, yeah, I, it got me thinking, like, what kind of cognitive process is going on? One way to think about what's going on for me is at least that the way that memory works is you just like are pulling out this video file, let's say, of what happened and moving it to the end and then seeing the last frame and then reporting what you saw. Um, but I guess this also raises questions about like, you know, how exactly does memory operate? Do you have this like continuous video or do you just have a series of images? Or also, are you even revisiting something that happened or are you like maybe actively reconstructing it using like a, a higher level inference on one side about you know this is some conceptual information it was a melting and then i'm and then i'm trying to combine that with some like hazy perceptual images so i don't know whether you have any speculations about like why exactly these representations would be would have this kind of momentum i do have some thoughts about this but i'm also grateful for the permission you just gave me to call them speculations because they're just that. So I even get a little bit wary of like sort of adaptive explanations for various phenomena when we don't test their adaptiveness directly. So I'll say what I'm about to say with some skepticism for my own saying it. But here's one idea about why you might think that we misremember things as being farther along their changed trajectories than they really were. One purpose of memory is to help you recognize something when you see it later. So we remember all kinds of things, but one thing kind of thing we remember is something's visual appearance. And one reason why we encode something's visual appearance is so when we see it next time, we know what to look for. And since these things really are changing, they really will look more changed the next time I see them. The ice cube really will look more melted. The log really will look more burned. And so one reason you might think this sort of thing happens, is that that's actually just memory serving one of its functions. It's serving the function of helping us recognize the thing later. And that wouldn't be so unrelated to what we spoke about at the very beginning of this conversation, about the importance of representing change for also being able to represent something as being the same thing over time. So that's one possibility. Interestingly, that's almost not the possibility that you get from like the name representational momentum, right? Like the, the name of this phenomenon evokes a kind of different process, which is like I set something in motion and then I try to interrupt it. But but memory is so, you know, this representation is so is so ballistic that it just it just went on without me, you know, wanting it to. And that would be that's also a cool way to think about what's going on, which doesn't really, you know, put any fingers on any supposedly adaptive uses for something. You might just say, this is just a quirk of how we represent the world. And so I think like those kinds of explanations, which is to say almost like there is no further fundamental reason why this thing should happen or some reason why creatures who didn't have representational momentum got eaten more often than creatures who did or something like that. I think that kind of explanation might work as well. Although the picture of the mind that really imagines representations to be like things moving around in your head might not be quite right. So anyway, those are some speculations. You might think that that's one of the purposes of running this thing forward, but that's certainly not something that we've tested. So it's only a kind of nice idea to think about for now. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And 
Yeah, and it's interesting that this has changed specifically. So this is not that like someone watched something changing and then something stopped changing. And then you ask, what did you last see? Because in that case, you would predict that, you know, if I see this thing again that stopped changing, it would have stopped changing, right? Right. So so for example, I see a car driving down the street and then ah, I have to look away. Maybe I misremember it as being farther down the street than it was. Whereas I see a car driving down the street and then park and then I look away. I might not remember it as like in the next parking spot or something. Yeah. I mean, like driving down the street and then it stops the middle of the road. Let's say. Sure. You would remember it just as being where it was. Yeah. That sounds right to me. Yeah. Okay. At the end of the paper, you do talk about some more larger questions. So I feel like I, I want to give you also another chance to just like talk about any other things related to this study that you think are cool. Well, you know, there is one connection we make in the paper between the phenomena we're exploring and some recent work on intuitive physical reasoning. And there's a lot of work on that latter topic. I would say that most of it is about sort of assessing a physical scene and understanding what's going on. So things like, will this tower block stay standing or fall down? Will this puzzle piece fit in this slot or something like that? And our lab has actually worked on those kinds of questions too. But in this case, we're not asking people to make any evaluative judgment at all. We're not asking them what's going to happen. We're not asking them, do you think this scene is like this or like that? Instead, we almost sort of pull it out of the subjects by asking them other questions, right? Questions about what they saw, questions about what they remember. So in a sense, we're testing some kind of intuitive physical reasoning, but in this very indirect way. Right? Does our physical understanding of a scene leave traces in other processes in our minds that show up in our behavior? And that's something I think is a, a cool way to do experiments. It's nice to be able to test something you're interested in without actually asking your subjects anything about that phenomenon. You're asking them some other thing, and then your question sort of emerges in the data, the answer to your question. Yeah, and one really awesome, I think, paragraph towards the end of the paper that I really liked was just explaining what this work means. That This implies that even people's memories is, I think the word you used was, is being invaded by a higher level inference about what's going on in the scene. Um, and like, maybe this could explain generally what kind of mechanism we use to reason about the physical world. Like, is it combined with other kinds of inferences in some way? Um, and maybe this work suggests that that could be the case. Yes, that's exactly right. I think the word we used is intrude, but invaded sounds kind of cool too. But that's absolutely right. The idea is that you might have thought that memory is just chugging along, doing its own thing, just trying to get the world right without regard to what's actually happening or what other things you know. But what we're suggesting here is that you almost can't help but misremember the world this way whether you're trying to get it right or not. And certainly the subjects think that that's their job. They're just trying to get the right answer. But they can't help but having have their memory uh, affected by these uh, representations of change. And so that is one thing we think we've demonstrated. Yeah, William, thank you so much. So uh, finally, I'm going to just ask a couple questions that we ask all of our guests. So the first question is, yeah, given that you are like a successful cognitive scientist that we all look up to you. Uh, any advice you have for young academics? And the second question is just, how do you know a question is worth pursuing? So I guess they're kind of quite related. Uh, well, you know, I get a bit nervous about giving advice, especially in light of phenomena like survivorship bias and 
the role of luck in our careers. So, you know, I'd want to make sure that any advice I give, especially if anyone listens to it, uh, doesn't just amount to saying something like, you know, hey, I found a winning lottery ticket with these numbers on it. Maybe you should try playing these numbers too. But still, I guess I have a perspective that I could share. So I would say that perspective is that I feel it's important not to lose sight of the big picture questions that got you interested in your field in the first place. We often get drawn into our fields by an inspiring course that we took or a beautiful like field-defining piece of work that we read. But then when it's time to get our hands dirty with our own work, we get mired in smaller picture stuff like finding gaps in the literature and narrowing our interests and becoming very specialized. And I think there's definitely a role for that kind of thing. But I hope something that we've tried to do in our lab and in our work is to keep our eyes on the big stuff, the stuff that you can explain to your non-scientist friends and family, the stuff that hooks you in the first place, and also the stuff that sort of matters in a broad way, including to other fields. So in our lab, we often try to make connections to other fields like the philosophy of perception, and sometimes computer science too. And those connections usually come from the bigger stuff rather than the smaller stuff. I would also say that as a perception lab, we're very lucky to be able to find inspiration for our work just everywhere we look. If you pick up a vision science journal, you'll find that lots of the studies in it are about things that don't really look very much like the real world. You know, they're about lines and dots and circles. And that's true for some of our projects too, don't get me wrong. But as we've seen today, at least, lots of work in our lab is also about things like ice cubes and fires and sticks of butter. And I think that comes from just paying attention to the world around you, right? What is perception like in real life? And then how can we take some phenomenon that we observe in real life and import it into our lab. And at least I think that's how we think about a lot of the projects that we pursue, including the one that we've been talking about today. Yeah, brilliant. That's that's really good advice. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really grateful for your questions and for this opportunity. Thank you so much. This was a really engaging conversation. I hope it's going to be as engaging to our listeners. I hope so. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. If you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics of the podcast, you can click on a link on the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect to us on Twitter at Stanford SciPod. And finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or elsewhere so people can find us.